Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with a quick take on last night's primary in Indiana. Usually at this point in the intro, we play audio from the speeches by the winning candidates, but last night, it was a losing candidate who made the biggest news. From the beginning, I've said that I would continue on as long as there was a viable path to victory. Tonight, I'm sorry to say, it appears that path has been foreclosed. So those are screams of no from Cruz supporters in Indianapolis as he announced that he's suspending his campaign. A lot to talk about. We'll get into a little bit of it here. We'll also talk about Bernie Sanders, who won Indiana on the Democratic side. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. So what happens now on the Republican side? Is, is it over? Essentially, yes. I mean, uh, Ted Cruz has now cleared the way for Donald Trump. Uh, He's the likely nominee of the Republican Party, barring something really extreme happening at this point. Donald Trump tonight goes over a thousand delegates. He had a big win in Indiana. He's got a thousand forty seven delegates as of uh, tonight when we were uh, taping this around uh, 11 o'clock here. And he's now 85 percent of the way there to the magic number of one thousand two hundred and thirty seven that he needs. He picked up 51 delegates in Indiana so far, everybody else zero. So a very big night for Donald Trump. And I think also the chairman of the RNC came out and he tweeted tonight declaring Donald Trump as the presumptive nominee. And Donald Trump said that he had actually spoken with the chairman earlier this evening. Reince I mean, Priebus. I think Reince Priebus. And so, I mean, I think to me, that's an indication, too, of, you know, not only is he seen really as a likely nominee by, by the mathematical figures, but also by the head of the party. By the party. And you saw so many people come out tonight who are mainstream Republicans, people who were opposing Trump in this hashtag never Trump movement, who are now saying they're never ever Trump, many of them. Uh, Some others, you know, resigned to the fact that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee Mm -hmm. and having a very difficult time trying to figure out what the next play is and how they're going to support somebody who they were very much opposed to. So two things. First of all, I guess right now I'm a little bit in shock because we learned so much about contested conventions and delegates. (laughs) And what are we going to do with all that information? (laughs) It's not wasted knowledge. Don't worry. It's like a cool party trick. You can bring it out. You guys want to talk about pledged versus unpledged delegates. But Domenico, (laughs) we had we had talked about uh, taking this to Cleveland uh, for so long. And we had mentioned over and over again that California was going to be the decisive state, that there was no way for Donald Trump to clinch the delegates he needed until June 7th. So so why not stick it out if you're Ted Cruz? Why was a loss in Indiana such a big deal? Well, first of all, California is really expensive. I mean, if you have to go that long and you kind of see what's happening, you know, what, what was great tonight, uh, our visuals team created a graphic for us of the timeline of delegates from the beginning of this race to now. And Ted Cruz and John Kasich have essentially flatlined since the end of March, where they've hardly picked up any delegates since then. So a very difficult path for them. Asma, you've paid so much attention to demographics and voter trends over the course of this primary. How did Donald Trump expand his base uh, in Indiana tonight compared to how he was doing in earlier states this year? I think it's a really interesting question. I think early on in this election, we heard a lot about Donald Trump and his support from white working class voters. So blue collar voters, folks who had either not gone to college or who had, you know, possibly just dropped out of college, never finishing. Uh, I think 
probably by Super Tuesday, that narrative ha- had already begun to shift. And we had started to see that he had actually done really well with college voters in a number of states. I would call a state like Florida, where he cleaned the house. I mean, he did very well. I remember speaking to a lawyer, a software engineer who told me why they were supporting him. And then, you know, I, I don't know exactly why and at what point he was able to do this. But if you look at the results from Indiana, it's clear that he has broadened his support. Just because if you look at, A, at the number, I mean, he managed to capture more than 50 percent of the vote tonight. Early on when he was winning states, he was able to win. But, you know, just by capturing about 35 percent of the vote tonight, he won evangelicals. He won folks across essentially every education group, with the exception of postgrads and every income group. But we should remember, OK, Donald Trump expanded, but among Republicans. Right. True. In a True. very white primary and is very different than what the rest of the country looks like this demographically should be the election where the lowest share of white voters vote in this general election. That's what Whit Ayers, who uh, was Marco Rubio's pollster and has written a book about this, projects out that there'd be about 68, 69 percent of the electorate is going to be white this time, the first time dropping below 70 percent. And that's why you saw, I think, a change in language from Donald Trump. Stop talking about, you know, ban on Muslims. He didn't talk about that tonight. You don't hear him talking about the wall or didn't hear him talking about that tonight, at least. You know, he still has a long way to go in how he talks about non-whites because he talks about uh, the blacks and the Hispanics and they want jobs too. Well, that clearly means that you're outside of that group and that you're not really talking with them. And I, I think that that is going to be a big challenge for him. It's going to be a challenge for him in how he talks about women because there's a treasure trove of opposition research that Democrats are going to pull out, whether it comes from this campaign or whether it comes from the Howard Stern show or anything else that Democrats want to pick apart that Donald Trump has said about women. Asma, what do the polls look like just in terms of Trump's popularity with women at the moment? Women have had very unfavorable attitudes towards Donald Trump now in many of the recent polls I've seen. I mean, you're looking at unfavorable ratings of 70 percent or higher. So no, he is not popular with women. He's not popular with Latinos, uh, with African-Americans, with uh, with essentially large groups of voters, with the exception of white men, to be totally blunt. I mean, that's sort of where he has banked on from much of his support. He keeps making the argument that he can broaden that support base and could potentially bring out more um, new voters in states like Ohio and Pennsylvania. He does like to talk about how he can broaden out. He's even said that he could win New York. The reality is Republicans have a very narrow path when it comes to the electoral map in the first place. When you talk about putting a Donald Trump on the map, the only way he wins is by boosting the white vote and boosting turnout among whites and especially white men to levels we haven't seen in this country. I think sometimes we uh, we go from, from week to week to week and we're looking at the trees covering these primaries and we don't take a step back and look at the big picture. Let's just do that for a moment. Domenico, how remarkable, how surprising is it that Donald Trump... <laughs> is the likely Republican nominee at this point for for the White House. Well, think about this. Just a year ago, you know, we talked about the White House Correspondents' Dinner over the weekend and, uh, you know, President Obama and his very last White House Correspondents' Dinner. Just a year ago, President Obama stood there and skewered Donald Trump, who was sitting in front of him saying, you know, Donald Trump is here still. And that came, you know, just a couple of years after he had released his long-form birth certificate, right? Right. Because Donald Trump, had led the quote-unquote birther movement because he wasn't sure if this president was actually born in the United States and called for that long-form birth certificate to come out. So 
if you take a step back and you think about how improbable it is that Donald Trump is the nominee for the Republican Party, this is a party that has nominated moderates and establishment figures for a very long time. But maybe we should have seen it coming. I mean, if you think about Sarah Palin being picked on the Republican ticket in 2008 by John McCain, and you saw people ripping off the McCain part of the bumper sticker, and they were thousands of people showing up to Palin rallies, not really for John McCain, but to see Sarah Palin. And then you see Barack Obama and the attitudes toward him in the White House. There is no Donald Trump without Sarah Palin, and there's neither of them without Barack Obama and the attitudes and feelings toward him and the cultural change and identity in this country. Let's shift gears and talk about the Democrats. Uh, Bernie Sanders wins a close race in Indiana. But we should say first that even with that win, Clinton's delegate lead is still pretty much insurmountable. Domenico, can you catch us up to speed to, to why that's the case? Yeah, so Bernie Sanders, as of 11 o'clock or so tonight, you know, was leading Hillary Clinton 53-47 in Indiana. He won Indiana. But because of how Democrats allocate their delegates, Bernie Sanders would have needed 65% tonight of those delegates in order to chip into Hillary Clinton's lead. He didn't do that. He won 53 percent. Still an important victory for him in a morale way to be able to say that he keeps winning. He does keep winning and beating Hillary Clinton. And he'll probably keep winning. And, and I think that we should step back here and understand that this is Bernie Sanders, who's a 74-year-old self-declared democratic socialist who is able to take essentially the New York Yankees of politics – to the hilt here. I mean, you know, Scott, you might not like that analogy. Clinton you know. was a lifelong Yankees fan, she said, when she moved to New York to run for Senate. <laughs> <laughs> having previously been a Cubby fan, uh, supposedly, uh, having grown up outside Chicago. But, you know, the, the numbers right now on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton is 92% of the way there now. She still hasn't gotten to the magic number yet. She's going to need uh, the upcoming contest to be able to do that. She has to get to 2383. So we, we have our likely nominees on both sides now. And I think over the last week, we got a little bit of a preview of what the general election is going to look like. Asma, can you catch us up to speed in terms of what Trump was saying about Clinton and what Clinton was saying about Trump over the last few days? So I think demographically, the nugget that stands out to me the most is when Donald Trump implied, or he didn't imply, he actually said straight out that uh, Hillary was playing the women's card by implying that if she was a man, she'd only have like 5% of the vote. The, that is what stands out to me the most because the sort of swing demographic that both Dems and Republicans will need in November are independent women. And I think that the rhetoric that we're already starting to hear about women and, and what's at play could be very interesting. I mean, some of it could turn women away from Donald Trump. I mean, I think the other question, big question mark, is also if this campaign turns very negative, will that also turn off some women? I mean, I think that as the rhetoric has gotten nastier and nastier, that just also turns people off. Mm -hmm. Dominica, what's next for Ted Cruz? Who knows at this point? I mean, Ted Cruz is probably going to want to try to run again. You heard Donald Trump tonight say that uh, that Ted Cruz has a great future. He's certainly going to be able to go back to being a senator. He's not very well liked in Washington by Republican leaders. And secretly, Mitch McConnell somewhere tonight probably uh, maybe taking a sip of bourbon and uh, pretty happy that Ted Cruz has been uh, pushed out of the race here. But now he'll be back at work with him. Well, that is true. But 
better there <laughs> where Mitch I mean, McConnell has the... What kind of reception the, uh, do you think he'll have going back to the Senate? Uh, you know, I, he he's humbled, I think, by this. Maybe. I don't I, know. I look forward to uh, Elsa Chang or, or Sue Davis telling us what that's like when, when Cruz yeah. returns to Capitol Hill. Um We've got a lot that we're going to get into at the at the roundup at the end of the week. But but before we wrap this up, Domenico, uh, Tom Eagleton is a name <laughs> that we need to talk about and explain kind of an infamous record that we realized that, that Carly Fiorina set tonight. So Tom Eagleton in 1972 was George McGovern's uh, vice presidential pick. OK, he served for 18 days before dropping off the ticket. Because of uh, mental health issues, something it was really stigmatized at the time. They realized that he had been treated for depression. That was an automatic killer for for the ticket. And he got booted off the ticket in in one of many debacles the Democratic Party had that year. So so he was kind of the the low water mark for a vice presidential pick until. Well, and how how far we've come, too, on mental health issues, for sure. But Carly Fiorina has only served as Ted Cruz's pick. For six days. So she now goes down in history. Carly Fiorina, congratulations. She goes down in history as the shortest tenure for a vice presidential pick in the history of American politics. Well, a whole lot of stuff to talk about in our weekly roundup on Thursday. Between now and then, you can find more coverage at nprpolitics.org and, of course, on your local public radio station. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. We'll see you soon on the NPR Politics Podcast.